So we've already met um, Meredith Clement, who's in uh, New Orleans at LSU. And uh, she uh, is going to give us an update on STIs. We've already heard some of the previews of this with the doxycycline, but now we get to actually see the data. So welcome, Mary. So hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and talk about testing and treating and preventing STIs in people with HIV um, because I was tasked with talking about testing and treating, but given the emergence of recent data that's been presented at, at recent conferences, I, I couldn't help but add some prevention data in here. Um, so here are my disclosures. And I will skip through the learning objectives for the sake of time, but the outline is to give a very brief EPI overview, um, and then talk about the testing and treatment updates per the 2021 CDC guidelines for the treatment and prevention of uh, sexually transmitted infections, or STIs. Then go over some recent data on STI prevention, and then finally close with a few slides on MPOX. So uh, as many of you know, STIs have been dramatically on the rise in recent years. Uh, so the number of reportable cases, so that would include gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis of bacterial STIs has, has been at 2.5 million. This is the estimated number um, of, for preliminary data for 2021. And so as you can see by these arrows, there's been an increase in uptick in gonorrhea. Um, a little bit of a nosedive in chlamydia cases in 2020, um, and we aren't quite sure if that's a, a true uh, decline or not, most likely lack of reliable data collection during COVID, um, but an uptick again in 2021. And then an increase in syphilis cases, and then I think most sadly, an increase in congenital syphilis. And as you know, congenital syphilis can be associated with devastating consequences um, such as fetal demise and stillbirth. And then just to talk a little bit more about congenital syphilis in terms of race and ethnicity, we've seen stark increases um, among American Indians or Alaskan Natives as well as Native Hawaiian um, and Pacific Islanders over the past year. And so um, I think just kind of a reminder to be vigilant and, and everybody just remember the guidelines to screen women during pregnancy. And then in terms of testing and treatment updates, so I'm gonna review the, the guidelines released in 2021. So these were an update to the prior 2015 guidelines. And I'm gonna kind of briefly overview this because I think many of you are probably familiar. We've been doing this for a couple of years now. Um, the gonorrhea update, updated recommendation actually came out at the end of 2020. Um, and then I'm gonna talk about chlamydia, trick, and uh, pelvic inflammatory disease for a few minutes. So the 2021 recommendations for STI treatment in terms of gonorrhea and chlamydia, there were three main updates. The first was to increase the dose of ceftriaxone um, for gonorrhea and increase from 250 to 500 milligrams. And the 500 milligram intramuscular dose is for those who weigh less than 150 kilograms. For those persons who weigh more than 150 kilograms, the treatment actually now recommended is, is one gram of ceftriaxone. And then the second recommendation was to do away with this so-called double coverage for gonorrhea. So we actually dropped the azithromycin and in cases of 
of gonorrhea um, in which chlamydia has been ruled out, we're now doing ceftriaxone monotherapy. Um, and then the third recommendation would be to switch for chlamydia treatment from azithromycin to doxycycline. Of course, during pregnancy or for those of childbearing potential who are not on reliable contraception, we can still use azithromycin to treat chlamydia. And then for just a quick reminder that for pharyngeal gonorrhea, we do need a test of cure at seven to 14 days. So based on those three kind of changes with respect to gonorrhea and chlamydia treatment, I'm gonna review some of the data for why we saw those changes. Um, so the best predictor of drug efficacy for gonorrhea treatment is the time of serum-free drug concentration that is maintained over the organism's MIC, or minimum inhibitory concentration. And so we think that magic number for gonorrhea is around 24 hours. And so you can see kind of in this top left figure that that green line, which is the five milligram per kilogram dose, corresponding for most Americans to a 500 milligram dose um, is the minimum con concentration um, that still maintains that level over the organism's MIC for 24 hours. And actually that bottom figure just shows you again that five milligram dose maintains the, the therapeutic time of 24 hours. And then in the top right, what you're seeing is, and, and I apologize, I should have said this is all murine model data. Um, but in mice, the, the clearance, when they checked at 48 hours, 100% of mice had cleared their gonorrhea infection at 48 hours um, who, was, who received that five milligram per kilogram dose. So this is the justification to move towards a higher dose of ceftriaxone. Um, and then the justification to drop azithromycin as dual therapy really has to do with the percentage of gonorrhea isolates with elevated MICs over recent years. So this is data from GISP, which is the Gonococcal Isolate Surveillance Project. And you can see over from 2009 to 2018, um, these increasing, you can see the, the blue bar is azithromycin. And so um, the percentage of isolates with elevated MICs really significantly increased over that time. Meanwhile, cefixime actually went down, and that probably had to do with less use of cefixime. And then ceftriaxone was relatively stable. So we feel, still feel pretty confident about ceftriaxone use in the setting of gonorrhea, and hence now the recommendation for um, ceftriaxone monotherapy. And then just to touch on chlamydia, I think as most of us know, now we're using doxycycline 100 milligrams twice a day for seven days. Again, the alternative would be a gram of azithromycin. And in our clinic, we tend to use that for not just pregnant women, but women of childbearing potential um, who aren't on reliable forms of contraception. And then also when we think adherence may be a challenge. Um, and then uh, I just, a quick reminder not to forget LGV. So this is lymphogranuloma venereum, um, which you may have seen or be familiar with. And these are these really extensive presentations of chlamydia. So um, folks may come in with perianal or mucosal ulcers, tenesmus, bloody discharge. And in those situations, when, the, when you're concerned for LGV, you would actually extend the course of doxycycline to three weeks. All right, and so then just a little bit of data. These are um, some recently published studies of, um, that kind of shifted us in favor of doxycycline um, instead of azithromycin. 
So the first study was a randomized controlled trial looking at urogenital infection in participants from youth correctional facilities. This was 155 patients, around 65% were assigned male at birth. There were zero failures in the doxycycline group and there were five failures in azithro. So the efficacy was about 100% and 97%. And so the non-inferiority of azithromycin from those numbers actually was not established. So again, looking in favor of doxycycline. And then Julie Dombrowski and colleagues conducted a randomized controlled trial in men who have sex with men who had rectal chlamydia. This was published in CID. In their study, there were 177 infections, and the cure rate with doxy was 91% versus the cure rate with azithromycin was 71%. Um, so that was an absolute difference in treatment of 20%. And then similarly, a prospective study, so a, a more of an observational study, was conducted among cisgender women, and there were 341 rectal infections. Microbiologic cure was obtained in 79% um, of those treated with azithro versus 96% of those who received doxy. So again, all of this kind of making us look more favorably upon doxy and less, among, uh, and less favorably at azithromycin. Okay, so here is our first audience response question. So you are seeing in your clinic a 43-year-old cisgender woman with HIV. She comes to you for routine care. She takes bictegravir, intracytamine, tenofovir, alafenamide with good adherence. She's had two recent sexual partners in the past year. She tells you she's fallen with GYN. She has always had normal pap smears. She's getting them every three years, and her last one two years ago was normal. However, she has not had STI screening in recent years, and she comes in that, requesting that today. So in, or, in addition to ordering syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia, what other tests would you order for this patient? And I'm coming from New Orleans, so I got some jazz music. Seventy-six responses, so I think I'll go ahead. Um, and I tended to ask the easier questions. Um, so good job, everybody. We're at uh, upwards of seventy-five percent. So this is correct. Uh, nucleic acid amplification test for Trichomonas vaginalis. Um, so trick or Trichomonas vaginalis, which actually causes the clinical syndrome of trichomoniasis. Um, we have a recommendation, which I think is a little bit neglected um, from what I see in my clinics and others to screen women with HIV upon entry to care and then annually thereafter. Um, all women with discharge should receive diagnostic testing. And then this was actually a change based on some good RCT data that we should be moving towards metronidazole twice a day for seven days. Uh, for vaginal infection. So a, a change from just what was previously a one-time two-gram dose. Um, and then tinidazole, two grams is an alternative. And for men, it's two grams of metronidazole, and, and partners should be treated. Uh, you should know that clearance can take up to three weeks. And then if persistent infection, you can perform resistance testing, but also consider combination treatment. 
And so now to talk a little bit about pelvic inflammatory disease. Um, so really, actually, if you read the STI guidelines, kind of vague diagnosis, hard to, di hard to diagnose, um, often missed in the clinic, can lead to significant complications. Um, but what PID refers to is a spectrum of disorders of the upper female genital tract. So this, this can be endometritis, salpingitis, tubo-ovarian abscess, or peritoneal um, peritonitis. And in one study, when they tested um, women with PID, 50% were found to have gonorrhea or chlamydia. So we know that there are organ other organisms, including anaerobes, that can cause PID. And so the most recent change to the guidelines in 2021 was to no longer have metronidazole be optional, um, but to have a three-drug regimen prescribed in all cases. This is for outpatient management. But ceftriaxone intramuscularly plus doxy twice a day for two weeks, and then also metronidazole twice a day for two weeks. And then just to note, because most of us are seeing um, women with HIV, they are more likely to have tubo ovarian abscess or require surgery, but other than the increased screening annually, there's no need to treat them any more aggressively than other patients. Okay, so now moving to the recent data on STI prevention, which I think is what we've all been waiting for. Um, so I'm gonna go back a couple of years to the Ypres-Gay Olay study. So as many of you know, Ypres-Gay was a HIV prevention or PrEP study. Um, as part of the open label extension, the investigators enrolled 232 participants and they were randomized to receive on-demand PEP with doxycycline versus no PEP. Um, and they did this in 2015 to 2016. So actually the results were published in Lancet ID in 2018. And what the authors found was that there was a reduction in syphilis rates. So this is, they looked at STI incidents, including first case of syphilis, um, and found a difference between the PEP, a significant reduction in the PEP arm compared to the no PEP arm. And then for chlamydia, they found a similar finding. Um, for gonorrhea, there was actually no difference. And as that, Dr. Del Rio mentioned earlier, the rates of tetracycline resistance for gonorrhea in France are about 56%. Um, so that was kind of the reasoning there. And then um, because of the contributions of syphilis and chlamydia, there was a difference in all STIs. Um, in the PEP versus no PEP arms. And so this, that study um, led to several other RCTs that I'm gonna talk about, um, but the one that was presented at age 2022 last July by Dr. Luke Meyer was the DOXY-PEP study. And so this was a two-to-one randomization scheme. Um, they looked at two separate groups, men who have sex with men and transgender women living with HIV, and then men who have sex with men and transgender women on HIV PrEP. And to enter the study, um, participants had to have at least one STI in the past 12 months um, and condomless sex with at least one male partner in the past 12 months. And so there was quarterly STI testing that was gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis. Um, and the sites were San Francisco and Seattle. And I actually added this box, so this is not Dr. Luke Meyer's original slide. Um, but I just wanted to show you what they were doing up front in terms of resistance testing. So samples for Neisseria gonorrhea, Staph aureus, and commensal Neisseria species were collected in both arms. And then the plan was to get gonorrhea sampling, so swabs at diagnosis of gonorrhea prior to treatment in all cases. And you're going to see that didn't totally pan out. 
Um, and then also Staph aureus nasal or oropharyngeal swabs were collected at time zero, six months, 12 months, and then commensal Neisseria oropharyngeal swabs were collected at time zero and 12 months. And so here was the primary outcome for STI incidence per quarter. And what you can see is that in both the PrEP arm and the um, arm of patients, or I'm sorry, participants with HIV, there was a significant reduction in all STI incidents per quarter, about a two-thirds reduction um, that was highly significant. Um, and so this is showing kind of all STIs, and then this is showing the breakdown of the different STIs per site. Um, and if you look at, at this table, it again shows you basically for each STI, so now including gonorrhea, um, there was a reduction in STIs per quarter. The only one that didn't meet statistical significance was syphilis in people with HIV, and that really had to do with there were just so few cases overall in either arm. Um, so, but significant that gonorrhea, um, the gonorrhea was, had a, a change in um, PEP versus no PEP, um, and really our percent resistance here is more like 15 to 20%. It's much lower than in France. And so here, um, the authors looked at tetracycline resistance and incident gonorrhea um, who had culture data. And Dr. Luke Meyer actually presented this just last month at Croy. And what she explained is that they were not able to obtain isolates in all cases. And then even when they did obtain cultures, often they didn't grow, um, particularly the pharyngeal and rectal cases. Um, but what they saw was that tetracycline resistance was similar in incident gonorrhea at baseline and on doxypep. So just to orient you to this slide, um, all the orange is, is susceptible or, or MIC less than two. Um, the sort of aqua color is MIC greater than or equal to two, so that's considered resistant. And then the darker blue is MIC greater than or equal to 16, and that's considered highly resistant. But overall, this was just a very limited analysis because there are only 56 cases, and so just kind of difficult to draw conclusions. Um, and again, the authors also looked at, um, or the investigators also looked at Staph aureus colonization, and Dr. Luke Meyer started by reminding us that Staph aureus colonization is associated with subsequent clinical staph infections that can be clinically mean meaningful. So surgical site infections or bacteremias. And so what they saw overall, and, and sorry, just to orient you again, so orange is, orange yellow is the baseline. Um, the blue, sort of light blue, is standard of care at six months, while the darker blue is standard of care at 12 months. And then the lighter green is the doxypep group at six months, and the darker green is the doxypep group at 12 months. And so what you're seeing here is over time a reduction, an absolute decrease in the doxypep arm in staph colonization rates. However, meanwhile, there was an, also an 8% increase in resistance in the doxypep arm from baseline. And this is just staph aureus colonization, but I, I think 8%, it, was, it, re, it reached statistical significance. Okay. And um, so then in terms of looking at methicillin-resistant staph aureus, um, there was no change in doxy resistance with um, doxypep. And here you're seeing kind of the same color scheme for the bars, um, but also kind of few cases 
um, but, but overall, no, no changes over time. So kind of in summary, for gonorrhea, there was a significant reduction in cases with the use of doxypep. Um, however, they weren't, the authors, the investigators weren't really able to assess the impact on gonorrhea resistance with the use of doxypep. For Staph aureus, there was a 14% absolute reduction in colonization, but at the same time, an 8% absolute increase in doxy resistance. And then MRSA, the cases were few, and there was no change with the use of doxypep. And then I didn't present these data, but for Neisseria, also there was no change associated with doxypep use. So just keep in mind the small number of gonorrhea cases that actually had resistance data, and then also the standard of care participants were receiving quite a bit of doxycycline as well. Okay, now also going back a few years, this was a study that was published in The Lancet in 2017, and the authors, I think, were pretty smart to do this analysis, where they knew that on a population level, the meningitis B vaccine had been rolled out um, starting like in the 90s. So you can look at the kind of increase that like Carolina blue color um, is the number vaccinated over time. I, to be fair, I went to Duke for many years. So <laughs> I also hate to say Carolina. Um, but uh, you can see in the figure on the right, what they did is they looked at cases versus case control study. Controls were folks who, you know, later in their, after their sexual debut, um, these same vaccinated individuals many years later um, were diagnosed with chlamydia. And then the cases were, um, were the folks who had been vaccinated. And if you follow that, that red line, hold on, here, um, here, you can see um, a decline in cases versus controls. Um, and it was statistically significant in about a 30% reduction in those who had been vaccinated on a population level. And this was one of the first studies that caught our attention and I think motivated some of the subsequent randomized controlled trials. So this is the Prevenir study. Um, this is just the study schema, a really interesting factorial design where um, participants um, were randomized two to one to either doxypep or no pep, and then at the same time were randomized one to one to get the meningitis B vaccine versus not, and then STI incidence was followed over time. And so Dr. Molina presented these results at CROI also last month. Um, and so similarly to what we've just seen in the two studies I just presented, um, an overall reduction in chlamydia or syphilis cases in the doxypep versus the no-pep group. And then when you looked at the meningitis B vaccine, so again, this was one-to-one -one randomization, there was also a significant reduction by about half of the number of gonorrhea cases in the vaccinated individuals versus unvaccinated. I think what's a little bit tricky is because this factorial design, you have two-thirds of these participants who also received doxypep, so a little bit harder to interpret, but the, the, the doxypep folks should have been evenly split between the unvaccinated and the vaccinated. So, and this, I actually, I said I would talk about it. I don't have a slide, but I think this makes, this is a teaser for the MAGI data. Um, and so the Bexero vaccine is being studied kind of across the country. New Orleans is a site, Atlanta is a site. 
Um, and that is not a factorial design. There's no DAC-CPEP. It's really looking at um, meningitis B vaccine versus not. So I think we'll eagerly await those results. And then disappointingly, uh, Janelle Stewart at Croy presented the DOCSIPEP data for cisgender women um, and really made the case that, you know, cisgender women bear the highest burden of morbidity and mortality. So given the sequelae of STIs such as PID, chronic pain, infertility, pregnancy complications, and HIV acquisition, so they conducted the first study of DOCSIPEP among cisgender women. Um, but unfortunately, there was no impact. So when they looked specifically at chlamydia or time to first overall incident STI, you can see those curves are right on top of each other. Um, and they, she did not present adherence data or PK data. I think we will eagerly, eagerly await that. Um, so right now we don't have really an idea of why this unfortunately didn't work in cisgender women. Um, but I think we can say these results are a little disappointing. And so the CDC guidance right now, if you go online, um, does talk about DOCSI as STI-PEP. Um, they say there's efficacy data. They remind us that it only applies to gay and bisexual men and transgender women. Um, and then they talk about dosing. And I do think there's a good reminder here about phototoxicity, GI symptoms, and rarely esophageal ulceration. I work in STI clinics, so all day I'm telling people anyway, take, take your doxy with a full glass of water, remain upright for 30 to 45 minutes after you take it. But I think if this does become more widespread in its use, we will need to remind our, our patients, um, you know, to be very cautious about side effects. Um, and then, you know, it references the guidelines of how we should continue to screen, test, and treat. But there's no definite, like, you should be doing this or you should not be doing this, but it lays out kind of that we do have data on, on it. And I think kind of just reminding us, like, this is an older paper before we had these efficacy studies, but it does go through some of the risk benefits and what, what needs to have further study um, in terms of side effects. You know, we've been using DOCSI for a long time um, for acne and for malaria prophylaxis. Um, so we're, we're familiar, but I think just keeping in mind that doxycycline can have side effects, potential changes in the mi microbiome, cost, and resistance implications. I don't know if risk compensation is such a concern. Okay, and then I want to wrap up by talking about MPOX for just a minute. So this is a 55-year-old cisgender man who has HIV. He's well-known to your clinic and to you. And he comes in with painful vesicular anorectal lesions. His last CD4 count from 18 months ago, so he's been out of care a bit, was 74, and his viral load was 22,000. HSV testing, you somehow already got it back. It's negative. But his PCR chain reaction testing for orthopox DNA is positive. You're concerned for MPOX, and you initiate treatment with TPOX. And then all of the following populations should be prioritized for treatment, except... A, people 65 years of age and older. B, pregnant or breastfeeding people. Um, C, people with skin conditions such as psoriasis. Or D, people with severe immune compromise such as advanced HIV, leukemia, or solid organ transplants.
here we go. Um, so actually, this is incorrect. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> the question was harder than I thought. So I think we've all been in the mindset of COVID, right, where older age equals more severe disease. Actually, the guidance from the CDC is that TPOX should be prioritized for all these populations except for people age 65. And what we should actually be prioritizing is young people, infants, babies, toddlers, um, young children. So um, pregnant and breastfeeding people we do think have worse outcomes and should also be prioritized for treatment. So in the last couple of minutes, I'm going to go through Dr. Orkin's study that she presented at CROI. Um, so this was what she called a global case series. Um, and she looked at folks who, I'm sorry, let me just go back for two seconds, um, were from Europe, the Americas, 72% from Americas, but over half from Latin America, and the vast majority were from Mexico, um, and uh, a small percentage from Africa. But sadly, in this study, only 7% of these folks were vaccinated, um, and 50% were virally suppressed in terms of their HIV. So, and all had CD4 counts less than or equal to 350 um, uh, copies. And so, here um, are the data, and what they, she did was broke um, the outcomes down by CD4 count. And what you can see, if the CD4 count was less than 100, the outcome of death occurred in 27% of those individuals. And if the CD4 count was 100 to 200, the outcome of death occurred in 4.3%. And then you can also see higher rates of ICU or inpatient hospitalization among folks with lower CD4 counts. There were no deaths in anyone over um, 200 uh, CD4 cells. And then um, this is kind of looking at the data a different way. Um, but the death rate in um, those with a CD4 count less than 200 was 15% and 27% with a CD4 count less than 100. Um, and, uh, and in this study, too, I kind of alluded to it during the Q&A session, but there were several cases of Impox iris. So as Dr. Del Rio said, I think this has kind of made us rethink Impox and really consider it as an opportunistic infection in people living with HIV. Um, and I think that's my last slide, and I have 30 seconds left. So I guess it was appropriate to have New Orleans music while you were playing, but I would have had some Broadway because uh, the, the play Avenue Q has a great line, and it says, love you, see, I hope you don't get gonorrhea. That was one of the songs. Anybody see that play? Uh, I wanted to address the second doxypep in our population. So mo most of these studies were done with a relatively small number of people in a large population. And I'm trying to uh, think of a way to create tetracycline or doxycycline resistance in a population. It would be basically to tell people to take it intermittently, give them prescriptions to take it home, and by the way, they might take it for their bronchitis or willy-nilly because now people have their prescriptions at home. And I think we really have to think carefully about who's going to get it and what's going to happen because as more, in our clinic, more and more people are asking for doxypep. And I think we really haven't addressed the elephant in the room is what happens, what would be an STI world where we, an MRSA where we can't use doxy anymore. And, and I think at ID week, people kind of 
poo-pooed a little bit for that reason. And so I just wanted to get your comments on that. Yeah. Um, can you flip to the next slide? This was an anticipated question. If it's okay. Can we go to the next slide? It's okay if, if we can't. Um, so valid, totally valid points, and I think this is why um, this is controversial. And uh, do I have the right answers? No. There have been, like, CDC forums on this where lots of experts um, with more knowledge and smarter than me debate this heavily. So I, I think we don't have a right answer. I do agree that more and more patients are going to be requesting this. Um, you know, one thing is we, I, I, I guess – the concern over the gonorrhea resistance, you know, we don't use doxy to treat gonorrhea anyway. And in the study, we actually avoided um, some ceftriaxone use because we saw fewer cases, right? Um, but the staph aureus resistance concerns me. I love staph aureus. I mean, I love doxy as a staph aureus drug. <laughs> Um, so, but, you know, in these folks who have very, very frequent infections, they're coming in and they're getting doxy all the time anyway, right? So what I had on the next slide was I just always think about the Traeger study that was a PrEP study in Australia. It was, I think, published in 2018 or 2019. If I had my slide, I could tell you. Um, but it was published in JAMA, and it was looking at STIs in folks on HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis. And what they showed, and this is, I think, what we see in clinic, I do, probably most of you guys do too, but 25% of their cohort accounted for 75% of the STIs in that group. And so you do, like in the case that Dr. Sag presented, I think you have these patients who come in again and again for recurrent STIs, and those are the folks I think really could benefit from it. And I, I think we can't neglect that STIs do have serious consequences in some cases, um, and of avoiding, you know, a stroke from secondary syphilis is is important. So, I love staph aureus. Uh, I bathe in it every day, and it's fabulous. Um, well, here's a here's a question related to that that last case that you described, and so we see the the meningeal vaccine. Syria meningitis vaccine is somewhat protective. Yet we have almost every case, it seems like, has, of, a, of gonorrhea has had previous gonorrhea. Why is that not protective? And we're working on a gonorrhea vaccine that's even more specific, obviously, than the meningococcus. What's going on here? You mean why won't it prevent Yeah, why, why, why doesn't cases? having gonorrhea in the past protect against it six weeks from now. Yeah, right. I, I think we need to figure that out. Okay. <laughs> um, but I, I do think that the, you know, the data on the meninge vaccine, that outer membrane vesicle vaccine is promising, and that's a, a low-risk intervention. Yeah. And actually, the guidance from the CDC on the use of that vaccine is for um, folks who are 16 to 23 years of age, which is where we're seeing a lot of these STIs, it's a shared decision-making. You could just do that for routine clinical care anyway. Um, yeah. So I think we might see some more uptake, uptake of that. Yeah, I just think it's fascinating. Um, question. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Very nice talk. I was looking at the, the uh, table from the Orkin study of deaths associated with uh, 
city board council. I was wondering uh, if you recall whether they did any uh, uh, stratified analyses on that because lower city board counts are probably associated with being diagnosed in lower resource settings, which also increases the likelihood that there's less information about cause of death, which is its own difficult assessment. And the, uh, the list of complications also would be interesting to see in relation to CD4 counts, et cetera. So, so the stratification by, by region of origin, is that what you're? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't recall that. I, the study actually was just published in The Lancet. Um, okay. So it's possible that, that that is in there. I need to go back and look okay. at the full study, but I, I, it wasn't in her um, oral presentation. Is this table, is that what you're talking about? Okay. Um, there's uh, one question here on the card, and it's about, you know, something we don't have a lot of control over, and that's cost. So the concern is that if doxy is suddenly identified as something that's really cool to prevent um, STIs, do you think that there'll be price gouging? Um, Hope not. It's generic, yeah. right? Doxy is generic. Right. I think I think it won't because it's been around for so long and it's used for so many other things. I think this use will be relatively small in the big spectrum because Doxy is one of our best drugs. If I had to pick a most valuable player in outpatient ID, it'd probably be Doxy. Yeah, you know when Paul Sachs always yeah, has those debates, right. it's always one yeah. of the favorites. Yeah. It, it's, it's a great drug. Um, but the, the question was raised in the context of DARE printer. Um, right, right. Uh, and, and that drug got monopolized by a very shady character who ended up in jail, but not for that reason. And um, I don't think we're going to end up in that situation here. Right? Even in New Orleans, it would not be a problem. Okay, well, thank you very much. We're going to take a short 10 minute break. Uh, wonderful coverage of a complex topic.